Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to the first episode of Couched, which was actually recorded prior to the start of the current COVID-19 crisis, but has a strong resonance with and relevance to what we are experiencing today. And now, on to the episode. Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, my name is Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couched. Today, we're delighted to have two exciting guests. The first is Dr. Robert J. Lifton, psychiatrist, psychohistorian, and award-winning author of over 20 books, the most recent entitled Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism, and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry. And Dr. Stephen Solds, psychologist, psychoanalyst, and social activist, who has worked tirelessly for over a decade to remove psychologists from participation in abusive interrogations and other problematic military operations, and has written numerous articles on this subject. Today, we will be discussing the restoration of reality. Essentially, how do we regain a sense of reality in the face of the unrelenting attacks on truth and the onslaught of lies that we are currently being bombarded with? And I want to start us out by asking Dr. Lifton if he could explain to us a concept, one that you've written about extensively, that of malignant normality. I think that could help orient us to the conversation. I came to the idea of malignant normality, not surprisingly, through my work with Nazi doctors, the most extreme of malignant normality. And what that meant simply was that the doctor at the ramp who selected Jews for the death chamber was doing his job. It was what was expected of him in that society with a normality uh, that came to killing Jews and others and putting forward extreme Nazi ideas. Of course, the malignant normality in this country under Trump and his associates is by no means as extreme but nonetheless very disturbing and uh, predominant. And the malignant normality that we exist under here has to do with lies and deceptions to the extent that the society is now being run on a series of lies and of falsehoods, and it becomes an effort to restore truth, to find ways uh, of expressing what is actual. The distortions are very much helped by conspiracism, conspiracism that isn't connected to necessarily large theories, though it might be, but just functions as a state of mind. So restoring reality becomes not only a title for our exchange, but a major struggle of the society. Mm -hmm. I experienced a similar thing to a much lesser degree in efforts to get 
the psychological profession and the American Psychological Association to acknowledge that they were aiding and abetting the Bush administration torture program through activities that most of the people involved, I'm sure, did not think were necessarily pernicious, but were, from the viewpoint of outsiders, clearly problematic. And I would say that that particular project of yours and encountering the malignant normality imposed by the American Psychological Association and American policy could not have been more important because, after all, torture is a terrible process for anybody concerned with it, and especially the victims, also the perpetrators. But it also is a symbol over the ages of what's evil, what's uh, to be avoided, and what designates a society as a bad society. I see that project, a kind of crusade from within the American Psychological Association that you led as absolutely central to our times. And it also was, I would say, an expression of what I call a witnessing professional, where you bear witness to that malignant normality. This is a destructive form of behavior, and it's not to be our norm, and this is what it is, and here's something that's better and which must replace it. And that function of a witnessing professional to expose malignant normality and then take active steps against it is crucial. In addition to your stellar accomplishments, one of the reasons we invited you here today is because you're both our heroes. Uh, and it's precisely because you both have been in the role of witnessing professional. And they're both blushing. <laughs> well, uh, uh, yes, be slow to take heroes. But, uh, but having, exactly. said, that, having said that, I think we stand for, and, and I certainly advocate, a combination of scholarship and activism. And too much so in the American and other academic traditions, scholarship and activism have been considered totally separate and antagonistic entities. Scholarship should be pure. Activism can't depend upon others' ideas. That's completely wrong in my view. Scholarship is enhanced and given direction by activism, and activism is given better forms of expression through scholarship, and both have to be disciplined but they enhance each other, and if you only do one totally without the other, there's something missing. I think that's a wonderful point. A lot of patients I've been seeing are struggling with this either-or dilemma. Also vital for activists to have a firm commitment to pursuing the truth, and that especially where the truth may challenge preconceived assumptions. And one of my roles, I'm a researcher as well, we would have documents and we try and understand them, we're trying to read government documents, especially things that were supposed to be classified and make sense of them is, is an art form that's quite difficult, it turns out. And one of my roles was always say, okay, it might mean that, but what else might it mean? How do we know it means that and not this? Huh. And because we went through this rigorous process, 
we made very few mistakes in an endeavor where making mistakes would be very costly because they'd be used against us. Mm-hmm. On this issue of restoration of reality, I believe, and this is turning a corner quickly, mm-hmm. that the impeachment proceedings and trial are a struggle for restoring reality, mm-hmm. among yes. other things. Of course, they take place because of presidential violations, high crimes and misdemeanors. But I see our society as suffering from a national reality disorder imposed on us by the president and his associates, in which there is great confusion about what is true, what is real. And in the systematic work on impeachment and the systematic probing of all of the behaviors and elements that contribute to abuse of power and uh, obstruction of Congress and of justice in general, in that process, there is a struggle to regain reality. And that's not so easy. And in fact, the difficulties and the reality disorder that I mention may be one of the most painfully lasting legacies of the Trump administration long after he is off the scene. But it's something we have to attend to. You talk in your book about totalitarian regimes, that people survive by developing a second parallel reality. Do you think the impeachment hearings are a form of getting something like that started? Yes. uh, Here I would quote Václav Havel, who spoke of living in truth. When the psychologists uh, rebelled against their society's distortion of reality, they were trying to live in truth, and they did among themselves, among others, and finally brought that truth to a large population. And in our society, there is the the same overall need. One has to live in truth in one's own groups, in one's own life, uh, and then bring out professional truths. Witnessing professionals don't uh, do away with their professional knowledge. They call upon it, but they try to bring a, bring it about in truthful rather than distorted circumstances. So yes, living in truth becomes a crucial form of regaining reality. One of the things that has struck me is rituals and rites, R-I-T-E-S. So when we saw the chief of the Supreme Court walking through the Capitol and carrying the articles of impeachment in the box, you know, just seeing those rituals and the, taking the oath that they're going to be impartial, I think that's really important in restoring a level of reality that we've lost track of while people are photoshopping and, you know, altering through their computers reality. It seems that part of what's unique about Trump is, you know, politicians have distorted since time immemorial. They make an attempt to relate to what's real. Trump is creating a new culture where there is no attempt to relate to what's real. Yes, uh, that's why I call Trump's reality solipsistic. With solipsistic reality, you take in only what the self can take in, 
and what the self needs and wants, and there's no responsibility to all others and their experience of reality or to criteria of evidence. That's a remarkable form of reality. And what's strange and difficult about Trump is that he has this extreme solipsistic reality, but I don't think he's psychotic. In that sense, this extreme solipsistic reality is found in psychotics, but Trump not being psychotic is a skillful media manipulator and has skillful political instincts, but solipsistic reality is a grave danger. I want to link it to an experience I've been having. You call it reality fatigue. And yes, that's exactly what it is. I'm fatigued by his solipsism. And in reading this book and reading more detail about your work that you've done, um, Dr. Solds, I had a very distinct experience of relief and connection and I would say hope restored. And it sounds lofty, but it actually happened. And it happened, I think, because it felt like there was language to grab onto and history of action to grab onto. It felt real. I think what you're talking about, we all experience when we see truth emerging and our institutions, which ideally, and at least to some extent, are based on truthful activities. So when we observe legislators investigating events and looking for small and large truths, or when we observe um, legal authorities or judges making statements about truth, we feel, we feel something warm yes. in, inside of us because the untruth, the solipsism of the claims of reality have reached much further into our psyches than any political activities of the past. They might have been, as Dr. Saltz says, uh, equally present or almost as much present in the past, but they didn't seem to be at the heart of society, and we didn't feel as inundated by them mm -hmm. and is overwhelmed by them. So this tendency toward a national reality disorder takes its toll on all of us. And we're not exempt if we are acting on it, but I think there is some individual psychological gain by taking a stand and speaking out and working with other people about it. Mm -hmm. I think we've all been suffering that reality fatigue. I think one of the complexities of dealing with this is that you need a combination of personal integrity and personal standing up combined with community. Mm -hmm. And we could not have done what we did if we had not had a community working together. Sometimes students of mine have said, look, you know, I've been in the streets for three months and nothing's changed. And my answer is, uh, it's, it reminds me of a line from Kurt Vonnegut, the American novelist and writer who said, nothing ever begins and nothing ever ends. Maybe he was exaggerating, but 
certainly activism doesn't solve. There's no moment of Satori. Now we've achieved what we wanted and it's over. Activism is an ongoing process and there are ups and downs. Dr. Lifton, you talked about Trump and his solipsistic psychology. How do you understand the Trumpist movement, the others, and their fealty to this, uh, to his solipsism? What do you, how do you understand what's going on there? That question of the understanding of Trump's followers and his movement uh, can be more difficult than talking about Trump himself. I would begin by saying there is a cult-like quality. I wouldn't dismiss the whole Trump movement as simply a cult, but there's a cult-like quality with the Trump movement so that you hear it back and forth in the chants of lock her up or we'll build a wall, Mexico, all that. Uh, But you also see it in people offering themselves to Trump as an omniscient guru who can do no wrong. And he creates a narrative, and this may be a key psychologically, of revitalization. Even if he does some funny things, many of his followers can feel, many of the Republicans, he's at least revitalizing America, uh, taking it away from those soft liberals who let us be weak, or so that the what we used to call the loyal opposition becomes delegitimated. And the promise of revitalization is a narrative that people buy into even when they're uncomfortable or pay no attention to his falsehoods. But so that's one explanation. There are other explanations of fear and simple hypocrisy, which you don't have to be a psychologist to recognize. And racism, of course. And lots of racism, yes. But that said, Trump's promise of revitalization, make America great again, is common to all intense movements and revolutionary movements. But then I'd want to say something hopeful. When cult followers, cult-like followers, see their guru as unmasked, and this happened with an extreme Japanese cult I studied, Om Shinrikyo, once the guru was imprisoned and didn't look like a guru anymore and was uh, exposed as a criminal, his closest disciples denounced him angrily because they had invested everything in him and now he failed them. It doesn't mean that'll happen completely to Trump, but some of his disciples are wavering and there may be more of this phenomenon in the near future. Is that phenomenon what you've described as the hostility of suffocation? Well, when I studied Chinese communist thought reform, I said there was a limit to it, and I spoke of the hostility of suffocation and the law of diminishing conversions. What I felt was with them, and this applies more generally, as you're implying, they Mm over-reformed. When they first started reforming, they were heroes, people followed. Over time, the thought reform or so-called brainwashing methods became more and more punitive. They were always coercive, but the exhortative, idealistic element diminished, and they used more the Russian style of breakdown, confession extraction through torture. 
And now you, you see the Chinese communists carrying out the most egregious form of thought reform in a prison-like atmosphere with the Uyghurs, one of their large Islamic minorities in which they're trying to deculturalize them. But in general, what I'm describing with Trump can be fatigue even among his followers, but can mainly be a sudden recognition that he cannot do what he promised. Mm. He can't uh, do for them what they needed when they invested their entire being in him. In some way, we're heading for an end game that brings about enough truth, not full truth, <laughs> but enough truth to change things and bring about regime change. Uh, that's a hopeful perspective, but it's by no means impossible. You write, Dr. Lifton, about the protean self as one of the solutions. That's probably too strong a word, but one of the ways out of the regime of lying and falsehoods. Yes. Uh, I began to write about the protean self some years ago, and what I mean by the protean self is one that's more flexible, uh, many-sided, and changeable. And this has been a general tendency in psychology to see the self as less fixed in this way. Its operation is more resistive to absolute positions, totalism, or what I call cultism. But it isn't something you can prescribe. It's something that can take shape in society. And it needs its own grounding. You can't be totally changing all the time. You need grounding in basic principles. Dr. Soltz, I wonder if you have thought about whether there was a protean aspect to what allowed the APA to change its policies. I don't think that's the primary. I think what no. allowed the APA to, to uh, change its policies was that it got caught. Mm -hmm. um, uh. New York Times reporter James Risen obtained through the efforts of some human rights investigators emails that between APA officials and uh, Bush administration and CIA officials that demonstrated, in fact, they had been working closely together in various ways. And this caused enough embarrassment after the initial denial that they had to investigate. Nothing would have changed if they hadn't gotten caught. And that's part of the sadness of it is they would have gotten away with it. Well, but they got caught. Okay. Yes. Then how did people react to their getting caught? I mean, most people did nothing, undoubtedly. But you and a few others, or more than a few others, embraced the truth and insisted on what Ryzen had found as something that had to be followed through on. Here, I think you're more optimistic than I am, yeah. because my experience was the leadership, to a great degree, felt something needed to be done. A few of them very honorably yeah. felt others because on pragmatic grounds in, or, in order to save the reputation. But since initial policies were changed in 2015, there's been no follow-up. Basically, to a great degree, they want to push the issue aside. Basically, that's ancient history. Been there, done that. That was someone else. That was another time. Forget about it. Partially, this is because there's a lawsuit in which APA and Hoffman, who did the investigation, and myself are being sued, and 
when lawsuits happen, people become conservative, but it's only partly because of that. So I'm not sure how real or deep the changes that occurred are. Many in the profession, I think, got it. But whether the organization, that's an open study to be seen. The organization is a small dot on the universe, even though it's got a lot of psychologists. (laughs) And, you know, it's like what you pointed out, Havel in Czechoslovakia. He had this great moment of the Velvet Revolution and what happened, the country fell apart and all sorts of conservative forces took shape. But it doesn't mean that the moment is lost or that... Definitely. And similarly with your movement, you know, I read about it and think about it and see others commenting on it all the time. It's part of a very important recent history and it took a willingness and a responsiveness. You don't have to call it proteinism, but at least an openness of the self on the part of those who wanted to recognize it and refused to simply accept it as a malignant normality. So it's discouraging when it isn't followed through to the extent that one is certain it should be. But on the other hand, it remains a very important moment and it will reverberate more in other movements. I am heartened by the number of people from the military and intelligence professionals who stood up against torture at great, at great risk to career and sometimes beyond career. And as someone, I come sort of out of the anti-war world. That's sort of my background. It was originally the anti-Vietnam War movement. It's been a, a wonderful experience to get to know, become friends with, and to realize how how much values we share, including many of these people profoundly questioning militarism in our society and wanting to distinguish between the military doing a job they hope honorably and the society that puts them on a pedestal that is very problematic. Jean-Maria Arrigo, a a psychologist who's been one of my colleagues in, in these efforts, tells of being probably in January of 2003, being at a a military ethicist conference where people, one after another, were getting up in uniform and condemning the war crime that was about to happen with the invasion of of, uh, Iraq. I had experience of uh, then Major, later Lieutenant Colonel David Fracht, a JAG attorney who I worked with on a Guantanamo case, the case of Mohammed Jawad, who stood up in military uniform in the military commission in Guantanamo and moved to dismiss his client's case starting from the day that the, that the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, committed a war crime. To read that, every time I read that, I got teary-eyed and realized how, how complex the, these institutions are, that there is that tradition that he could stand up in court and, yeah. and, and say the president committed a war crime in, in his case, the, the crime of saying the Geneva Conventions did not apply in Afghanistan. And he got promoted after that. Wow. Yes, and people forget that we do have democratic institutions that are not easily destroyed. They're attacked viciously. The example you just gave I thought was a great example of 
the multiplicity that you describe in proteanism, that there's these surprises that can happen. Yeah. I'm wondering, too, if, if it's a surprise to the individual themselves at times, that they're finding parts of themselves in these moments of encountering various forms of oppression that they may not have known were there previously. Yes, uh, it's part of what I call proteanism to find out exactly that, that one has forms of expression and capabilities one did not know about. I was able to go to Prague soon after the uh, Velvet Revolution and uh, Havel being quickly made president, and I talked to a lot of people around Havel, and they told me of doing things they never thought they could do, like one young man who was kind of a ne'er-do-well who occasionally played some music and slept a lot and drank a lot and didn't have much of a goal in life, suddenly being given the task of the organizer of a newsletter of the uh, resistance. And he had to be completely responsible to do it in order to get it out to people and to do it quietly and so on. And there were other stories of this sort of thing. So we all have elements in us that are potentially called forth, which we didn't know existed. And it requires, of course, collective influence and collective behavior, mm -hmm. along with some leadership. I wonder if you would mind talking a little bit about anything in your personal life that may have motivated you to become an, an activist or to do the kind of work that you're doing? I'll start answering that question sort of indirectly. I've studied uh, extremely destructive events like behavior of Nazi doctors, the Vietnam War, thought reform, the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. Uh, and people say, oh, you must be very brave to study all these things. And my answer is, it's not a question of courage. It's a question of one's own life evolving in a way that one begins to see oneself as a person who does these things. For instance, one doesn't either come to it simply through a moment of exposure. Hiroshima was a turning point in my life. Uh, it changed everything for me because I knew it was clear we could destroy ourselves as a species in relation to this issue. But I had learned something about nuclear danger through a group around David Reisman at Harvard when I was very young and just a research associate. And I intentionally went to Hiroshima to find out what happened there. That, after my study of thought reform, gave me the sense that I can take a psychological or psychoanalytic perspective out into the world and bring it back and try to make some kind of sense of it. And that became a pattern that I could follow. I didn't have any dramatic experience that led from childhood or early life that led me to this pattern. I, I hadn't dreamt that I would do this when I was younger. And even as I began to train in psychiatry, though critical of a lot of ideas that were in psychiatry and psychoanalysis at the time, I imagined myself teaching at a university and doing some therapy, not doing the things that I did. So 
one can evolve and see oneself as someone who does these things. And the other thing I would say is that if you're open to it, there's no professional action that doesn't have a moral component. And you come to that perspective. Once you come to that perspective, everything can follow. Thank you. Dr. Souls? Yeah, I, I was always a rebel. I mean, I, in fifth grade, I got in trouble for refusing to say the Pledge of Allegiance and was involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And for many of the activists from my generation, that was so formative to see our country destroying another country, killing two or three million people, and the lies that accompanied it led to a distrust of authority in many instances. But like many others, got on with my life, went to school, got career, became a psychologist, got psychoanalytic training, had a family. So that was in the back burner for many years. And then came the buildup to the Iraq war. And I was just aghast that we were going to go through it again. I just couldn't bear that. And it just, it totally obsessed me. On the day the shock and awe started, we had just gotten cable TV like a week earlier. And so the CNN was on and, you know, Anderson Cooper was raving about the bombs in Baghdad. And I couldn't bear it, and I had just learned how to build websites. So I created an anti-war website, and I ran upstairs and spent all night posting on this. It's like, I can at least do something. And that led to when the torture issue came up, I was writing for the public on relation of psychology and social issues, especially as regards foreign policy. So I said, well, that's one thing I can do. I can write. And so I, I wrote something on the APA and the issues involved there. It would have been in 2006 and led to people calling me and who were other activists and forming a community. I, I would say one of the things was there were times that it was scary. We did not know. We were challenging the CIA, the military. We didn't know what was going to happen. And there were some times when we were not totally convinced bad things might not happen. And then I sort of thought about, you know, my heroes as when I was a child, it always been Henry David Thoreau, uh, who went to jail for his opposition to slavery, admittedly one night, and others. And I just felt like I couldn't live with myself if I didn't continue. I'm struck by how the at least I can do something led to more than just something, right? That could be, you know, considered small. And I'm also thinking about, you know, that least that idea of at least I can do something. I think there's a second piece that happens that actually leads to somebody doing something, which is and it'll matter. And maybe I'll find other people who are doing a little bit of that something too. Because I think so often hear versions of well, I, I could do something, but why would it matter? It I, would, I would have revised a little bit. It might matter. It might matter. Yeah, well, but that can be yeah. enough. 
And, and I, I, in the same spirit, I would say, with the motto, everything counts. Everything yeah. counts. I mean, some things more than others, but everything counts. And I would add, I want my children to see me modeling behavior that I believe is ethical, moral, good behavior. You know, one thing to add is that uh, you mentioned um, uh, the danger that we can put ourselves in sometimes, but by and large, we're privileged in the degree Definitely. to which we can protest. Mm -hmm. And there is still room in this society as much as some people would like to control it and to own reality, as I put it, there's still room to protest. And in our two personal cases, we've done various things. Yes, we've been attacked and maybe somebody threatened us, but by and large, we haven't been punished. If anything, we've been honored for protesting and recognized, and it's contributed to our lives. So the point is that the society allows for more constructive and protest than we think it does if we can seize that opportunity. Okay. So I'm afraid we're going to have to stop for today. Well, thank you for having us. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Thank, Lepton. Thank Very you. wonderful. Uh, thank uh, you both. I've appreciated being here with you. It's such an honor to have had this opportunity to have this extended discussion with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.